Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy. And I'm Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, Darley Routier, Part 3. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Here we are tonight, closing out Part 3 of Darley Routier. Friends, the resources we've accessed for this case are out for the public to see and read. So if you want to really dive into this rabbit hole, lots of court transcripts, autopsy reports, it's all out there for you. All right, hon, if you're ready, I'm ready to jump into part three. Yeah, let's go ahead and get going. All right, friends, grab a beverage and let's talk some crime. All right, Chris, in part one and two, we discussed the crime, the victims, the evidence, and some of the trial. Today, we are going to discuss the defense side a little bit. Um, their questioning to Darley, Darley's own testimony at the trial. We're going to touch on it. Um, there really is just so much in her testimony to read. I found out something interesting, Chris. I was reading a piece that Skip Hollinsworth did in 2002 on this case, and he says in this piece, there are 33,000 typos in the transcript from the court. 33,000? From the, um, you know, what do you call the uh, the person that Stenographer? Typed? Yes. So 33,000 different typos or mistakes, which he found really high. That uh, sounds like a... That's pretty high, yeah. That's a lot. So um, something he mentions in this piece, which kind of gets us into, we're going to be talking about alternate theories, you know, the what-if game, right? What if Darlie didn't do it? There are people who believe she's innocent and have and have she's been wrong, wrongly convicted. The New York Innocence Project has actually picked up this case, and they are working with her attorneys on trying to get um, some of the blood evidence, the fingerprint found, tested further. Um, this fingerprint was found in blood at the Routier home. It is said not to belong to anyone in the Routier family, any of the neighbors, friends, anyone they've tested, and they ran it and nothing came up. But they are hoping that they can take this piece of evidence and get it further tested by the New York Innocence Project um, teaming up with them. So, um, okay. Let's start with Darley's defense and her uh, her taking the stand. So she did testify at her own trial. I did mention in part two that her attorney suggested that she not take the stand, but she insisted. So one of the things that was a big bombshell that I want to that I want to mention is the a guy named Charles Lynch. So he is Dallas County at the time, Dallas County's premier trace evidence analyst. So here's something we haven't mentioned yet that I found very interesting. He said that a bread knife that was found in the kitchen contained a nearly invisible fiber Okay, made of fiberglass coated with rubber. So when he puts this under the microscope, he thinks this fiber that's found on this bread knife looks like the fiberglass in the window screen cut by the intruder. Hmm. Well, I think all things point to that somebody inside cut it, even since they found no dust or anything like that. Um, disturbed, disturbed, right? Disturbed from the windowsill. Or the mulch. No yeah. footprints were found um, trying to kick open the gate. You know, the gate was closed until police arrived. 
Um, but there's no footsteps leading from that window or from that gate, no kick marks. One thing I want to make a note of, it is said that that gate was very hard to open and close. She had asked Darren Routier the day of the murders to fix that gate. Uh, she says he worked on it and fixed it, but police officers said that it was very hard to open and close. So somebody may have had to kick it open in order to flee and get out of there. Nothing is found. So, and because, um, so Darren says, right, he runs downstairs, he's giving CPR to Devin until the police officer arrives. That all came, that all fit the evidence, right? So this guy's saying the bread knife has this fiberglass piece on it. It seems to match the window screen, which means, like you said, Chris, it would have had to be an inside job. Yes. And they put the knife back. Um, all right. So again, the other part of this is the timing of Damon's stab wounds. So the planting of the sock, and then they had, you know, there was none of Darlie's blood on it. Chris, they had someone who was 20 years older than Darlie run out of that garage area to where the sock was found and back, and he made it back in 50 seconds. And he was 20 years older than her at the time that he did this. Yeah, I don't think it would have been very taken very long to uh, place that sock where it was located in proximity to the home. And we brought up the fact it was found, I find interesting, by a trash can and a gutter. Which is a little coincidental, but seems like maybe was somebody was trying to dump it, get rid of it. I don't know if they wanted this sock found. I'm not sure. If it's planted, maybe. But why not just throw it down the gutter thinking that they're not going to be looking three doors down? That would seem the most logical. Okay, so again, they said the defense says there's no blood on the sock. So Darlie couldn't have planted it because she was bleeding and there was none of her blood found outside. But like we said, Chris, she could have cut her neck over the sink, which is what police believe she did because of all the blood that was that fell in front of the sink and all of the blood that was found with luminol in the sink. Mm -hmm. So they believe she she did cut herself and she did it right there in front of the sink, which is why all that blood was falling. Yeah. Something else interesting that they found that I was new to to find out is they found a crease in the in the carpet, a blood crease that looked like something had been sat down that had blood on it and then picked back up. Chris, they took that knife and it was a perfect fit. They well, found she said she picked it up, right? No, they found this knife, right? They find this knife, but it was on the carpet. She says she found the knife on the floor in the kitchen and put it on the kitchen counter. This knife which had a blood drip from the very tip of it, when it set on the carpet, it fit the shape of the knife perfectly. Actually, it had about a half inch short. And what they testified to, blood analysts testified to, was that that is the drip pattern coming off the tip of the knife. So somebody, they believe, somebody put that knife down on the carpet. The, the, that, that mark was found... Inches, a foot away from one of the boys. Why would the perpetrator put the knife down on the carpet? They wouldn't. No, she she may have. She may have. So they've said it's a perfect fit. Uh, 
Darlie did take a lie detector test, and the only person that knows the results of that test is her attorney, and they have never um, been revealed. Uh, Darren also took a lie detector test, and he failed at four questions, and all of them revolved around having conversations with Darlie, knowing who killed his boys, and that's when they started to think, you know, Maybe there's something to it. Maybe, you know, they're not admissible in court, but um, Darren says he was under a lot of pressure. They questioned him for like hours before giving him this exam. So he thinks it was just completely flawed and that he has nothing to do with his children. Uh, one thing we talked about, Chris, that came out in this 2002 report from Skip Hollingsworth was an affidavit that showed that Darren Routier had talked to Darlie Routier's stepfather about someone burglarizing his home in order to get insurance money. So the theory is, if the court... Now, think about this. And this happened just a few months before these murders that he has this conversation. He never once ever thinks about possibly... You know, maybe he doesn't think about it because he didn't do anything. But what if he would have mentioned this plan to someone else, which is what the defense says, could have provided reasonable doubt in this case. Mm -hmm. If they would have known about Darren's thought, um, what he that conversation he had with Darlie's stepfather about somebody burglarizing the home for the insurance money, this could have at least created some reasonable doubt. And maybe she would not have been convicted of capital murder. And sentenced to death. So there's just things that um, create this reasonable doubt, which is a lot, of, which is why a lot of people think that you know she didn't do this. That there's there's more to the story. So once the father, or the stepfather, remembers this conversation, he tells Darlie's mother about the conversation he had with Darren, and she immediately um, tells her, uh, Darlie's attorney. So she immediately shares this information with with people and in hopes to getting her daughter, a, you know, a chance. Mm-hmm. And maybe that Darren um, would have something to do with this. So they talked about Darren being involved and why not kill Darlie? She's worth more than just killing the boys. And if it was a burglary, they're just going to pick up a knife and start ta- stabbing two kids and leave all of the jewelry. So it just didn't make much sense. I'm going to assume since this information has come out so long ago that they have looked into Darren's um, information, his, you know, his finances. I'm sure they have pulled all of that stuff. Well, it just doesn't make any sense because there wasn't much money to be uh, drawn from the death of the boys. So, yeah, no, you know, and, and if he and if it was supposed to happen that night and his kids are sleeping on the floor now, he's gonna call it off. He's not gonna he's not gonna put his boys, I think, in that position. If we believe, you know, what these scenarios and what people are are um, testifying to. Okay, so the other thing um I wanna talk about is the arrest warrant, which I did read. Um, and this was the affidavit for the arrest warrant for um, Darlie Routier. So basically in this arrest warrant, they are describing all of the information about the crime scene, her wounds. She, they, they bring up this 911 call very quickly in this affidavit. So they say she refers to them as they, although she told, you know, the police officer, this is police Sergeant Walling. He did testify in, in this case. Um, his testimony is out there too, if you want to read it. 
So he was the second officer to come on the scene. And then she says, you know, it's I think he was white. He was maybe wearing some dark clothes. Um, and then she says, Dar- Darley tells the normal woman dispatcher, and this was his words, my little boy's dying and later my babies are dying. That despite the fact that she knew that one or both of the boys were still alive. So Waddell has told, um, he asked Darley to make an attempt to stop the bleeding on the child. And basically what he testifies to is that instead of doing what he's asking her to do to help the kid, she's holding, she's basically helping herself and tending, um, tending to her, her wound instead. Um, and he could tell the cut was minor. I mean, he, he just said he wasn't, it clear, the boys clearly needed the help. Yeah. Right. And he's directing her to help and, and she's not. Um, another thing that, um, was mentioned was the knife, right. Could it was supposed to have been dropped in the utility room. Um, even though she says she never went into the actual utility room, but there was no evidence of any like blood evidence of any knife dropping. There were no knife droplets. There was really, there was none of that, um, in the utility room. Um, I also want to talk about, um, actually before I do that, let's stay with, um, Let's stay with this affidavit for for the for the arrest. Um, so they're exp- she's explaining to the officers about where she was sleeping and where the kids were were sleeping, and you know she thought he was going into the garage. Um, during the nine one one call, after about four minutes had passed, and you know. The police officer arrived. Darley said, go look in the garage, look out in the garage. They left a knife lying on me. And then she stops. Right. And the dispatcher says, like, don't touch anything. And while her dying kids are still on the floor, she says, I wonder if we could have gotten the prints. Maybe. I mean, it's just these weird things coming out of her mouth that, that they're trying to explain away. Is it a grieving mother? Would you know what you would do in that situation? But she's just very concerned about these prints. Yes. Clearly, um, clearly she is. Yeah. Uh, uh, about the prints. Okay. And here's um, here's another thing that is interesting. I want to talk about come some of the... So so basically in the arrest warrant to... I don't want to read this arrest warrant. But they're basically saying because of the lack of blood found outside, because of the lack of disturbance on the other side of the window, basically all the exterior, the lack of looking like anyone was ever out there, points to an inside job. You had all of the um, experts testify that they had gone into the house, reenacted, and that's what I want to talk about now. Some of these things that were, um, okay, we're going to talk about the vacuum cleaner. She says in her statement, you know, they ask her on the stand, where was this vacuum cleaner at? And she said, well, the boys track in dirt, so I used the vacuum to clean it up, and it was probably, you know, sitting in the family room, living room. Are you sure that's where it was? Yes, that's where it was. It wasn't in the kitchen, ever in the kitchen. Nope, it was never in the kitchen. Well, Chris, in that picture that I posted on our social, you see the vacuum cleaner tipped over in front of the sink. But, Chris, what they found under that vacuum was a footprint, a bloody, a bloody barefoot footprint, and glass broken on top of the footprint. She had no cuts on her feet. Darren Routier had no cuts on her feet, his feet. But this, the size of the foot, they were for certain matched Darley's. 
So that means the footprint of blood had to be there before the glass broke on top. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And then it the does. vacuum cleaner falls on top of that. Well, the glass, Chris, came from the wine rack, which was a wine glass. And that is the glass that she claims she had heard and then that Darren says that he heard as well. Because it was in the kitchen. Well, they went on this, they went up to this wine rack and they bumped it and they shook it and they moved it around and they, they did everything they possibly could and nothing, Chris, fell off of the wine rack. Nothing. It actually had some sort of, um, like the design of it was made so things did not fall off of it the way it was shaped. So they say that there's no way that could have broke. And if it did, why is it now laying under a vacuum cleaner and on top of a bloody footprint? I think she threw it on the ground to mimic glass breaking. Yeah, because how does a broken glass from a perpetrator who didn't touch a vacuum cleaner, how does it end up underneath the vacuum cleaner and on top of a bloody foot? All right, so that's the whole wine rack thing. And then... um Let's talk a little bit about what I mentioned about the carpet impression. This is the carpet impression of of the blood that they say matches the knife. I've seen pictures of this. I will post it so you guys can see this picture as well because to me it does look like an exact. They said nothing else in that area or in the home could have matched that imprint on the carpet that is sitting in blood. Um, the carpet fibers, like I mentioned, um, that were found on the bread knife. Another thing that they talked about was the silly string tape. Um, and that people did say she was sobbing and crying at one point. But there were nurses and doctors that testified that she was just saying random comments about the fingerprints and about you know, just just nothing that made them feel like they were dealing with a grieving mother. Not only a grieving mother, but a mother who was just supposedly attacked and her two children are now dead. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is a book that um, that was written about this case. And in this book, this book is by Barbara Davis. If you haven't read it, it's called Precious Angels. And she went after why this woman is guilty. And she actually interviewed people in the neighbors, um, people that knew Darlie. And I want to read a few, just a few of these um, little snippets out of her book. So she's interviewed and talked to people, and she says, Jenny Lankford put it this way. Darlie was content as long as the boys were gone. She didn't care anymore where these boys were as long as they weren't around her. Family and friends also witnessed screaming matches between Darren and Darlie on an increasingly frequent basis. Now, remember, in court, they both testified that they didn't really fight, that they weren't, they didn't really fight. They never had these really big arguments. But in this book, it comes out that that is not really what was happening. And witnesses um, 
and witnesses there to testify to testify with it. So listen to this one, Chris. Darren grew furious with Darlie about her weight. One day he arrived home early from work when, unknown to him, Karen Neal had Drake in the living room changing his diaper. Darlie was in the family room and Darren started screaming at her, you're just a fat pig. He warned his wife in no uncertain terms that she would either lose the weight in a month or he would find somebody else. Karen calmly walked in, looked at Darren and said, well, hello, Darren. The embarrassed husband immediately dropped the subject. That's pretty mean. Pretty mean. It's got, it, we're starting it's to just. mean, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't even imagine you saying something like that. I mean, I just can't imagine something like that ever just coming out of your mouth. And, and not only that, but we're starting to just sort of see this relationship and maybe how things really were going on. Um, so on Wednesday, June 5th, one of the routiers neighbors stepped out to get the mail. She heard Darlie yelling at Devin and Damon. She'd had enough of their bullshit and they were going to be in major fucking trouble when their father got home. That same day when Darren arrived home, he picked up the portable phone to call the VCR repair shop where he dropped off a unit earlier that day. Sam Greer answered just as the recorded message started playing and the conversation continued to record. As Darren explained what needed to be fixed, Mr. Greer's recorder taped Darlie in the background yelling at the kids and Darren. Mr. Greer flinched with every fuck this and fuck that. But now... But you see how everybody, some people have described her as soft-spoken and someone who didn't yell. Um, Skip Hollinsworth wrote in his piece that she was very, you know, soft-spoken and and calm. And so it's almost like we're dealing with two different, two different people, you know? Um, all right. Let me, I'm going to read one more. And this is from um, when she had talked to a a lady named Mercedes Adams. This is one of Darlie's friends. Darlie asked Mercedes Adams to go with her to see what damage the police had done to the house. Mercedes anticipated that Darlie would be over um, over route upon revisiting the scene of her children's murders. But as the two women entered the living room, Darlie shocked Mercedes by placing her hands on her hips and angrily declaring, look at this fucking mess. It'll cost a fortune to fix this shit. I put my hands on Darlie's shoulders and said, Darlie, look me in the eye and tell me you didn't kill the boys. She looked at me in the eye and said, I'm going to get new carpet, new drapes, and fix this room all up. I couldn't believe it. So this is just a couple of days. This is before her arrest. Mm-hmm. But so, again, the this is, again, if you have, you should get this book. If you're interested in this case, you can read Precious Angels. There is other shows and documentaries. I'm not, I'm sure there's some other books that um, talk in Darlie's favor and why she is innocent, which we are going to, we are going to talk about a little bit um, because a lot of this people feel like she was convicted on circumstantial evidence, but any investigator would tell you that in circumstantial evidence, when there are no eyewitnesses or or no confessions, then there you have circumstantial evidence. And there's plenty of cases tried on this and plenty of convictions given. Mm-hmm. So um, the last part of one of the other things I want to mention about her um, about her testimony is she got kind of snippy 
on the cross-examination. She started to get very snippy with the prosecutor, which is probably why her um, defense lawyer probably did not want her to take the stand because that just happens, you know, and maybe her par- her personality is to be is to lash out as we are seeing just from some of the accounts given. But one thing she says during this, when I was reading her transcript, I thought she says something on along the lines when she's on the 911 call. She's like, everything, everything was going so fast. You know, that everything, this is just happening so quickly. I just didn't know what was going on. And I thought to myself, how you don't know what's going on? Chris, how do you, I can remember every single moment of my time in the NICU. I can remember the sounds, the smells, the days, the thoughts, and, and, and then you just never forget. And to, and to say something like, I didn't know what was going on, to me, it just distances herself. It just makes it as though like whatever was happening was just, I mean, do you find that weird for a mom to say being in the living room of of your boys that have just been brutally murdered? I don't know. It was a traumatic event, so I wouldn't expect anybody to remember every account and every detail of that particular situation. So that's why it doesn't surprise me. You might get different tales and different stories. Hers are clearly quite different, but, you know, I mean, I don't. That's, I don't know. Maybe you latch onto it. Maybe it's like a latching thing. Maybe your mind will will latch on to that's those why, That's moments. why during a code at the hospital, you have one person who's a reporter that's not doing anything because usually the people that are doing stuff have pretty much no recollection or anything of anything else that's going on in the room. Okay. Because you are in a – your adrenaline's going. It's tense moment. You're focusing on your job and your, your role. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have one person who is the reporter who's watching everything that's going on and writing everything down and calling out stuff and keeping yeah. track of everything. So yeah. this notion that just because she's a mom and you remember every single detail of being in the NICU, you can't expect somebody to remember every single detail. No, in and I'm not so. saying that. I'm I'm just talking about more the lines of like just that wording. Like I don't – I mean you're now testifying in your own trial. I, I I guess I'm not defending her. I'm just saying no, no, that no. Even like the husband, they say they grilled him for hours and hours, and uh, you know it's like and then throw him on the polygraph. What do you expect that somebody? Yeah. Right. So he's grilled for hours and hours. I'm not saying she should have remembered everything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is. I don't know. I, I don't know. No, I think that's everybody's <laughs> expectation is that somebody has been through something like that is supposed to remember every little single detail that happened. And if that's the case, then you would expect somebody who has PTSD just to remember every single detail of whatever the event was that caused them to have something like that. Or it was a traumatic event. So, And typically people forget that. Typically the brain will try to forget that. It, I mean, it. I don't think. I don't know did. if it's I the human. Not, I'm not shocked that there would be different accounts and different things. And I mean, hers are very inconsistent one another. But I mean, you know, it's like the telephone game. Yeah, that's right. 
And when you tell a story back to somebody or you, you're a comedian and telling a joke, it's not always the same. There's always going to be some other little embellishment or thing. I don't think there should have been in this case. I'm just saying it doesn't shock mm-hmm. me that they would get different, a little bit different story, um, right. whether it's minus something, plus something, or whatever, if somebody's remembering something or forgetting something at that moment. So, um, So the circumstantial evidence, which, you know, like we said, when she was arrested, there's no... At the time, there was no motive, no witnesses, nobody saw or heard anything. Uh, the other thing they brought up was the dog and the cat. So in her testimony, she says, yeah, my dog would constantly bark if, you know, if if it saw someone they didn't know or heard something. And the cat in the cage was said to go bananas if somebody like was in the room or approached the cage and neither of those animals did anything that night. Now I find that kind of weird too, because her she would say like her dog would not shut up. Her dog was one of those dogs that we we know what that's like. We have one of those. We do. <laughs> we have one of those. So um, that's again something that kind of tipped them off as just a little bit strange. Here's some of the just the circumstantial evidence, um, and really honestly, just. This is the evidence that that they put forward. I'm I'm not going to go through all of these, but I am going to read um just a couple of them because I think they are important. One is that bloody knife imprint on the carpet um, near Devin's body. Again, I will post a picture of that. It's pretty powerful. And again, they argue why would a perpetrator drop a knife on the carpet and then pick it back up and then run? Doesn't really make much sense. Um, no cuts on her feet. Like I mentioned, despite the fact that she said she was running through the kitchen, the other one is all that blood evidence right there on on and by the sink and that it was all washed out. And I have to tell you, one of the big ones, another um, big piece of evidence that they, basically she testified, Chris, in trial that um, Damon was behind her when she entered the kitchen and he was standing up and he actually spoke to her. So, but he had been stabbed in the liver and the lungs. And since she's claimed he's walking around and speaking to her um, after the intruder left and then she realizes he's on the ground, they found very highly suspicious that this boy is just going to be standing and talking to his mom and then all of a sudden collapse. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the blood being washed down the sink and wiped away. There was no blood on the section of the couch where Darley said her head was resting. Uh, no cast off blood in the family room or in the kitchen is found. Just the smudges and the round drops indicating the slow movement through the area where she said she was running through. So, and then that bruise on her arm. So bruises on the right arm, which didn't show up until days after the murders. And there is no other blunt force trauma or bruises anywhere else on her face and body. Another thing, Chris, that she ended up testifying to. So the defense um, talked to her about the 911 call. And they said, have you listened to your 911 call? Oh, yes, I've listened to it over and over and over. So basically they were saying there were some words that came out of the 911 call, but that those aren't the actual words that she said. 
So in the trial, she changed the word when she says, I was fighting. And while she's testifying, she says, instead, she said, I was frightening. So they call kind of BS on that. So she, she, and she basically chalked it up to, um, you know, having, it was a traumatic situation, but she actually used the word I was frightening instead of I was fighting. I'll have to listen back to that and see um, if I can pick up on if there's actually a difference and if she is actually saying that. Uh, the overturned vacuum, Chris, that kind of, that does it a lot for me. You have a bloody footprint underneath a broken glass, which means she would have had to walk in blood before the intruder ran through the kitchen, if we believe her story. And that. Did she not have any blood on her feet? They didn't check her feet? Uh, no, they, well, she had no cuts on her feet. So I'm going to assume there was no blood on her feet. But yes. St- I'm going to assume there was no blood actually. But if you step in blood or you have, your hands have blood on them, it still. Right. Blood. I'm sure she had some blood on her feet considering she was, she was by the boys. She, uh, well, we know she did because that's her footprint. I mean, when you look at this footprint, it clearly looks like. A small woman's footprint. She was barefoot when a police arrived, so she had no socks or shoes on. Um, again, the one like I mentioned, I think I mentioned this in part two. Her wounds were significantly different than the boys. The boys had been stabbed. She had some, you know, a sort of a slice um, and not a stab. So if someone is coming in to hurt her and the boys, why do it differently? Why not? Why are you changing the way you're murdering someone? Doesn't doesn't seem to make too much sense. Here's another interesting fact that I did not know. I did not know. Well, I knew they were severe. I knew the financial problems were severe. Um, they said they talked every day about their business, whether it was good, whether it was bad, if there was money bringing, there was money coming in. Um, I found out that their house was on the verge of foreclosure and that Darren's application for a $5,000 vacation loan was turned down the day before the murders. Hmm. That that night, she says they were talking about her going on her vacations. She was planning a couple of vacations with some friends. They were making plans, but it they found out that there was a, a vacation loan that he did get turned down for. Um. And there was seems like the worst thing to take a loan for. <laughs> Not if you're living a certain lifestyle and you want to maintain that. People will go to and do. Um, I mean, his car, his his Jaguar was in the shop. The money to go on vacation, you don't borrow it. That's thinking rationally. But we're talking about someone who wanted to hire people to rob his home so he could get insurance money. Um, So these are just some of the things that. So these are just, again, some of the things that um, the evidence that people say and the court says and a jury convicted that. No intruder was inside of that home. They do believe it was an inside job. I can now, I will say, when she had this conversation with Skip Hollinsworth back in 2002 when he wrote he wrote this piece, um, 
she does make a comment like, I don't know if I know Darren or I don't know what to think about Darren after she found out. See, she didn't know about the conversation that Darren had had with the stepfather. Um, so, but I can only assume that they have gone through Darren's records and, and dug up as much as they can and, you know, tracked these things. I know people think that police just had it out for her and they wanted to pin someone for, a double hom- homicide of two children laying in a living room in the summertime and just, you know, innocent victims. But to me, I think they got this right. Yeah, I think so too. I think the court got this one right. Um, and, and and like I said, there's there's so much to this case. There's so much to read about, friends. You can go out there, read, but I'll tell you, Really, the vacuum cleaner and where the footprints and the glass are, and what and and what she claims was happening with with someone running this way, and there's no sign of any disturbance on the outside of the home besides the sock. It just raises more questions than than answers. But there has there has to be something said for. You know, there's no blood outside. There's no footprints. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's just nothing saying that anybody ever exited, exited that home. Um, Chris, I think I'm, I think I'm done talking about this case. Okay. I, now I did say we were going to play devil's advocate a little bit, and like I said, there are not just a few. There are lots of people who think Darlie is innocent. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. I wasn't on this jury. I'm just reading these facts and just from the testimonies. And I'm just trying to use common sense. And common sense just tells me that when I when I see the pictures of the knife and the blood and it's fitting perfectly and it's set down on the carpet and it's it's a foot away from one of the children, uh, there seems like there was some time taken yeah, and here's another thing, Chris. The prosecution actually thought before taking her to full trial and 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 basically saying what their motive was, they actually thought possibly that she had killed the children. And then when Darren hears noises and he comes down, he sees her trying to kill herself and basically stops her and doesn't and 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 helps cover this up. But I always think when you have two people that know what happened instead of one, sometimes with one, if you don't tell anybody, right? You we we've said this before, you know, it it's when you when you know something and you keep it to yourself, there's really nobody else that can find out, but once you tell someone everybody's going to find out. So it's kind of like that. Do you keep both people quiet this long? Do you keep Darlie who's sitting on death row, whose whose husband divorced her in 2011 to move on with his life? Do you think she would be keeping quiet if she knew Darren did this? I don't think so. I mean, you have you'd have a very upset woman sitting on death row and not speaking up. So, you know, he he decided to divorce her and move on with his life, but he also spent almost all of his life savings on trying to get her off and and helping her mm-hmm. to prove her innocence. And he even said he didn't want to divorce her, but it would it was just time to move on. So, does Darren know anything? Did he see something? Did, you know, 
did Darley do something? And and he's, you know, but then why waste all of your money if you know she did it, right? That doesn't make much sense either. True. All right. Well, friends, I think I'm done with Darley Routier. Um, go ahead, listen to, or I'm sorry, read some of this information, read the transcripts, come up with your, with your own thoughts. There are just a few kickers for me that make me lean towards the fact that I think the court got this one right. All right, friends, Chris. Brandy. We have another episode coming out tomorrow. I'll ro- I'm rolling solo on that one, friends. So you'll hear me talk about the Raccoon Bend murders. So I'll see you tomorrow. Good night. Cheers.